The reading of the gospel this morning is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. This is the word of God. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. And not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve, turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The Apostle Paul had much to commend about the response of the Thessalonian believers to the word of God, for they gladly received that word despite much affliction, and they bore witness to God's truth wherever they went. However, what was most remarkable in the church at Thessalonica was not their receptiveness to Paul's words, although that was commendable, but the way that God himself brought the gospel to them in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. These are responses to the word of God that only God can produce within his people. And they enabled the Thessalonian believers to continue on in their work of faith and their labor of love and their steadfastness in hope. And as we hear and receive God's word this morning, let us pray that God would use it powerfully to turn us to himself and to grant us grateful hearts towards Christ who delivers us from God's wrath. Now, please find in your bulletins that part that's entitled, We Confess Our Faith. And notice we are working our way through the questions and answers found in the Baptist Catechism. And I will read aloud the Catechism question, and then we, together as a congregation, after I say the word answer, will read aloud the answers. So question number three, how do we know that there is a God? Answer, the light of nature within man and the works of God plainly declare that there is a God, but his word and spirit only do effectually reveal him unto us for our salvation. Question number four, what is 
the Word of God. Answer, the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments being given by divine inspiration are the Word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice.
We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of First Peter, and the second chapter of the book of First Peter, and the second chapter, and I will be reading and then preaching this morning on verses 11 and 12. First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. I encourage you to read along silently as I read aloud this morning. Here Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace today. We thank you for this opportunity to hear the word of God preached, and we would ask for that power of the Holy Spirit that we read about that took place in the city of Thessalonica this morning, that that power would be here. We ask now for the work of the Holy Spirit, that he would be our guide and teacher today, that he would grant us an understanding of this text and help us to apply it in such a way that our lives are transformed, our thinking is renewed, and our conduct is in compliance with the truth of your word. For we ask these things this morning in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. This morning, brethren, we want to continue in our series through the book of First Peter. And in doing so, we come to verses 11 and 12 here in this second chapter, which address our spiritual warfare within and our spiritual witness without. Our spiritual warfare within and our spiritual witness without. And of course, these are necessary themes to address for Although we are greatly blessed as Christians, as a chosen race, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, as a people of God's own possession, nevertheless, you and I are engaged in real spiritual warfare. And we are called to be witnesses for Christ in a dark and hostile age. And yet we must remember that if we are unbelievers today, there is no warfare and there is no witness in our personal experience. For if we are unbelievers today, we are not at war with the devil, but we are actually held captive by the devil to do his will, according to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And verse 26, and we have no victory to witness about, but we're still ruled by the passions of our sinful flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies and of our minds, according to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3. So what we need to be confronted with this morning, if we are unbelievers today, is our need for deliverance from spiritual death and bondage, which we cannot 
deliver ourselves from. And we need to experience the saving power of God, which is only applied by the Holy Spirit and revealed and manifested to us through belief in the gospel. For as long as we reject Jesus Christ, we remain dead in our trespasses and sins, and we remain lifeless and powerless to experience true spiritual reformation and transformation as new creatures in Christ. But the good news for sinners like you and me this morning is that there is one who can and one who does deliver sinners out of thick darkness and into his marvelous light, as we saw back in verse 9 of this same chapter last Sunday. And you ask, how is Christ able to do this? How is Christ able to support us out of, transport us out of darkness and into his light? He's able to do this through his own perfect obedience and death upon the cross, where Christ fully satisfied the justice of God, which had been offended and violated by our sins, and he turned the wrath of God away from those for whom he made atonement. And in doing this, Jesus redeemed. He gained the spiritual release of those who were once in slavery to the tyranny of Satan and of sin. Therefore, there is deliverance today for those who have had their spiritual eyes open to the sentence of slavery and death that they once lived under and who now flee with a sense of need and urgency to Christ for rescue and release from spiritual darkness, that darkness that once overshadowed them and held them in its grip. And I ask you this morning as we begin, have you been delivered from darkness in the sense that I just described? Can you say, Pastor, I once lived in that darkness and I was helpless to gain freedom from it. But in the mercy of God, God granted me faith in Jesus Christ and the desire to repent of my sins. And from the moment that the grace of faith was given to me, my, my chains fell off. And my heart was free, and I rose up with haste, and I followed thee. Is that your testimony? If not, may it be your testimony today before you leave this place of worship. But as for our sermon text this morning, verses 11 and 12, Peter now assumes that we have been delivered from this spiritual death and darkness. Peter assumes that we have been translated into God's marvelous light. And he addresses God's people as those who have two principal duties. Two principal duties. And that is to engage in warfare on the one hand, since we still have a sinful nature and a powerful adversary, and to bear witness to the saving, transforming power of the gospel by our own conduct on the other hand. In fact, you could say that these two duties address the ins and the outs of the Christian life. The ins and the outs of our Christian experience. Inwardly, we are to be on guard and alert 
against the temptations and the passions of our own flesh. We are to win the inner battle. And then outwardly, we are to conduct ourselves in such a way that even the opponents of the gospel must confess that we live honorably and righteously in this world. And so these two duties must not be neglected. Where do our duties as described here begin? Well, brethren, let us note here in verse 11 that Peter addresses these saints by appealing first to who they were in Christ. There is much in 1 Peter about who we are. Once again, he addresses who they were in Christ, as well as how Peter felt towards them as fellow believers in Christ. For Peter addresses his readers here in the beginning of verse 11 as beloved. Beloved. And this greeting acknowledges the fact that Peter's readers were indeed the objects of God's great love. And that as such, they could rest confidently in the knowledge that they were accepted by God and that they would never be separated or forsaken by him. Then in addition, this manner of address from Peter also reveals the great affection that Peter, as a shepherd of God, had for these readers. For as Peter penned this letter, his heart overflowed with brotherly love for them, the same kind of sincere brotherly love that Peter commanded of them back in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. And of course, because Peter loved them so, he, he was concerned for their spiritual well-being. And because he knew that they were actually aware of his love for them, Peter did not hesitate to plead openly with them. Notice Peter uses these words, I urge you, I plead with you to walk with the right mindset as you are engaged in spiritual warfare and in spiritual witness. What was their mind to be set upon? What was their mind to be set upon? Well, note here that their minds were to be set primarily upon their own spiritual identity as sojourners and exiles. Sojourners and exiles. What is a sojourner? Well, a sojourner is someone who is staying or residing in a place temporarily. And what is an exile? An exile is someone who is absent from their home or from their country for a time, either by force or due to the nature of their mission. And of course, the ways that we as Christians are sojourners and exiles in this life are clearly revealed throughout Scripture. For as God's people, we are no longer of this world, nor do we follow after the course of this world, nor do we follow the leader of this world, but rather we have been translated into the kingdom of God's dear son, the Lord Jesus, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. And the life that we now live here on this earth is a temporary transient life, meaning that it is a life that only lasts for a short time. It is an impermanent life. And the reason for this is because Jesus Christ 
through his sacrifice, has purchased for us a far better life, a far better inheritance, an inheritance that Peter assured us back in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4 is an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, an inheritance that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Therefore, when we consider the impermanence of this life, when we consider that our best life is not now, but actually in the life to come, we readily confess this morning that we are simply sojourners here. We are just passing through. In fact, our, our primary goal is to do all that we can for the glory of God and for the advancement of Christ's glorious kingdom while we still have breath, while we are still upon this earth. Because like the faithful witnesses who are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, our true desire as God's people is not for a bigger piece of this world. Our true desire as God's people is not for a bigger piece of the pie, as they say, but our true desire is for a better country, a heavenly country where the heavenly one whom we love now dwells. And no doubt one reason why you and I desire a heavenly country as opposed to this present world is because this heavenly country already belongs to us. It has already been given to us in Christ. It is in this heavenly city that our true spiritual citizenship as God's people now resides. For the Apostle Paul wrote elsewhere in Philippians that our citizenship is now in heaven where we await our Savior or how easily God could take us home. And one day he will. In fact, we can be absolutely certain of that. But for now, we are Christ's representatives in a foreign country. For now, we are his ambassadors before a lost and dark world that does not know him. We are his witnesses placed in the circumstances and the settings that we are now in in his providence to speak his truth, to live out his commands before others in a way that brings him honor and glory. And with this spiritual mission that God has set before us as ambassadors comes great responsibilities. Which again brings us back to the primary duties mentioned in this text. We have a responsibility as God's people, as sojourners and exiles, to wage war wisely to wage war wisely, for we are at war spiritually, and we have the responsibility to witness actively and mainly by the way that we live before unbelievers. Let us notice how Peter, here in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, addresses our first responsibility to wage war wisely. For after reminding us of our identity as sojourners and exiles on this earth, Peter urges us as good warriors, as warriors who desire not to fail or to draw back or to falter in battle, to abstain 
from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Needless to say, Peter's words here give us some important insight into the type of warfare that we are presently engaged in and what battle strategy we are to employ in order to prevail successfully through it. Let's begin by considering first the type of spiritual warfare that we are engaged in as Christians in a world that is controlled by the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Well, Peter reveals to us here in our text this morning that this warfare that we are primarily engaged in is, is spiritual in nature. It is spiritual in nature, for Peter states here at the end of verse 11 that the things that are now warring against us, those things that are now seeking to disable us, those things that are now endeavoring to defeat us are warring against our very souls. Notice that, against our very souls. And of course, by this language Peter utilizes here, we are to understand that our primary battle is an intense, internal, spiritual battle. And it is a battle that we must fight in return by utilizing spiritual means. In fact, the Apostle Paul elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 in verses 3 and 4 describes the spiritual nature of the means we must use in in very vivid terms, Paul says in that passage, For though we walk in the flesh or in a fleshly body, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have a divine power to destroy spiritual strongholds. Therefore, the war that we are presently engaged in cannot be won by our physical strength of arms. Nor can we shield ourselves from the fiery darts of the wicked one by using physical defenses or maneuvers. But rather, given that this intense spiritual warfare is being waged against our very souls, it must be fought on spiritual ground. It must be fought by spiritual means. The means or the methods by which we defend ourselves must be spiritual in nature. And of course, the Apostle Peter is not silent here in our text in terms of revealing to us what our main tactic, what our main battle strategy should be if we hope to fend off the attacks that come against us with great force. What must our battle strategy be? Well, Peter urges us here in the middle of verse 11, notice the middle of verse 11, to actively abstain from the passions of the flesh. To actively abstain from the passions of the flesh. And of course, in saying this, Peter is warning us that there will be times when our fleshly passions will rise up against us like an opposing army, and they will storm the gates of our defenses, seeking to find any place of weakness in us in order to gain a spiritual advantage over us. 
In fact, if you're a believer, you have no doubt had this experience. And many times you have felt the onslaught, the attack of those passions. And yet Peter, in urging us to abstain from these fleshly passions, is instructing us not to do three things. Not to do three things. He's instructing us not to give these passions a place of entrance. We are not to give these passions a place of entrance. For if we think of our spiritual forces, our our spiritual defenses as a city wall, we must not permit our fleshly passions to penetrate our wall. For our spiritual well-being is only as secure as the integrity of the wall that guards our hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. And if we fail to man the wall, we don't set a sentry on the wall who yells and alerts us when temptation comes and who ensures that the gate to our hearts and minds is secure and holding fast, then we will surely be overrun when the onslaughts of the enemy come. For our enemy is wise enough to check whether the gate is first secure. And if we are careless not to guard the entrance, then he easily gains access into our lives. And so in one sense, to abstain is to be on guard. It is to be alert. It is to be on the wall. It is to be watching. Then secondly, by urging us to abstain from the passions of the flesh, Peter is pleading with us here in verse 11 not to entertain, not to experiment with our fleshly passions either. And no doubt one strategy of our enemy is to try to convince us that the passions of our flesh are not as dangerous as they might seem to be. Our enemy might try to convince us that a little indulgence or a little experimentation can actually be a good thing a fun thing, or a pleasant thing. And so our adversary might suggest to us, why deny yourself of some of the seemingly good and pleasant things of this world and its passions, and yet we need to see that these temptations are a ploy from our enemy. They are subtle temptations designed to take our focus off the fact that our affections are not to be upon the things of this earth, but on things above. And that our appetites, if I may call them that, are not to be directed to fleshly things, not to be directed to sensual things, but to those things that actually feed and nurture us spiritually. So to abstain here in verse 11 of 1 Peter 2 involves a refusal to take lightly the allurements and temptations that our passions present to us in an attempt to draw us in and to entangle us in sin. Then thirdly and primarily by urging us to abstain from the passions of the flesh here in verse 11 of our text, Peter is pleading with us to exercise true spiritual fortitude and resolve. Peter is pleading with us not to be sidetracked, not to be distracted and driven off course by the passions of this world, which are are so deceptive in nature. For the passions of this present world are quickly fading away 
and they leave behind nothing but frustration and emptiness. In fact, to quote from the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, John writes, All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from God the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Given this reality that the world is passing away and the lusts thereof also, it should be easy to see why you and I are not to be given over to it. We are not to be given over to these passions for what? Do you and I have to do with these passions? What business does a Christian who is just a temporary resident and a true citizen of heaven have pursuing and being controlled by the desires that are fleshly and fading away? No, brethren, you and I should be abstaining from the passions of the flesh because we've been called to a much higher purpose for living. We've been commissioned by a holy, majestic God to a lifestyle, a way of witnessing that is above and beyond this fallen world and its base and fleshly desires. We have been given the Holy Spirit that we might resist the desires of the flesh and walk in the way of light and of love and of worship. But of course, in order to do this, we must also engage in warfare, at least until our sojourn and our exile here is over. And it will be over very soon. But until then, brethren, we are not only called to engage in warfare wisely, we're also called to bear witness to Christ actively. To engage in warfare wisely, and then secondly, to witness to Christ actively, and especially by the way we conduct ourselves as Christians before unbelievers. Notice the text. For again, our purpose as exiled ambassadors is to represent Christ before others, and to do so even when those who are being reached out to by us are speaking evil of our attempts at well-doing. For Peter urges us here in verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2 to, to keep or uphold our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. For no doubt the surest way to lose our credibility with those we are trying to reach is to compromise or to be inconsistent with respect to our own conduct and our own behavior. And so Peter exhorts us here to live honorably. Notice that. To live with honor, or to put it another way, to conduct ourselves in such a way that we do not bring dishonor upon ourselves or upon the cause of Jesus Christ, which we represent. For bearing the name of Christ, being an ambassador of Christ, is a very serious and solemn responsibility. And it's possible that we will fail unless we are actively fighting off, unless we are actively abstaining from the desires of the flesh, and unless we are actively yielding to the powerful spirit who alone can produce within us the peaceable fruit of righteousness, even when we are faced with false accusations 
about our character and our good deeds are mischaracterized as being evil. Of course, brethren, we shouldn't be surprised if and when we are falsely accused of being evildoers. For Christ himself was accused of being many things, and yet he did nothing but good continually. And you and I are far less than good. And yet while it is painful to be falsely accused, while it is frustrating to have our good intentions questioned and our motives ignored and misunderstood, we should nevertheless rest certain that God knows the truth. God knows the truth. In fact, brethren, if our consciences are clear that we have done our whole duty by God's grace and for his glory, we should quietly and peacefully leave it to God to defend our honor and to defend our reputations. For our main concern should not be to defend ourselves, but to live honorably before God. To live honorably before men, according to Peter, even when we are abused and misunderstood, so that God might be pleased to use the consistent witness of our honorable conduct under pressure to bring all the glory to himself. Peter certainly suggests here in the language of verse 12 that God may indeed have this as a reason behind the difficulties that we encounter in witnessing to some unbelievers. Or no doubt you've had this experience as you've witnessed to some unbelievers. They have rejected you. They have said false things about you. They have, they have criticized you. And you've wondered why. And it could be that God's purpose was not that they should immediately be converted to Christ, not that we should immediately persuade them to consider Christ, but that they should actually abuse us, that we might experience their abuse and their impatience first. And why? So that they may see our humble conduct, even when we are being opposed by them that they may see the grace of our God perfectly at work within us as we bear up patiently and graciously under fire. Oh, dear Christian, do not give up living a humble life. Do not give up having a consistent verbal witness before those who may oppose you and who may now speak evil against you. For you do not know, you do not know what your powerful, sovereign God may do. And he may humble your opponent. He may bring them to remorse and true repentance by using your conduct and using your steadfastness and your long-suffering as a witness. For maybe God in mercy will one day visit those who once opposed us in the sense of granting them faith and repentance, which is how some commentators have interpreted Peter's closing reference here in verse 12 to that day of visitation. That day of visitation for some who once opposed the gospel are, are visited by the Spirit and do eventually receive it. That could very well be what Peter is referring to here. That visitation of the Spirit in their lives 
And yet while we do rejoice that some may be visited with faith and repentance as they observe our conduct, I'm, I'm inclined to believe that this day of visitation that Peter refers to here at the end of verse 12 of 1 Peter 2 is actually the ultimate day of God's visitation or the day of judgment. For on that day, our good deeds will be fully known. On that day, you and I will be vindicated from all false accusations. But even more importantly, on that day, God will be glorified. And even those of us who have been opposed will be justified and vindicated. And those who opposed us, who never responded to our witness, will bow their knees to Jesus Christ. And they will see that though they rejected our witness, the great mercy of God was extended through the offer of the gospel. Therefore, Christians, let us not leave off witnessing actively for Jesus Christ. Do not grow discouraged, believers, when people dismiss you and when people speak all manner of evil against you. For God has a much greater purpose than we now realize. And the Holy Spirit is at work in ways that we don't fully understand and that we don't fully comprehend at this point in time. But what should be plain to all of us at this time is that there is spiritual deliverance in Jesus Christ. And if we are to bear witness of that deliverance, we must know the reality and the power of it in our own lives. We must know it ourselves. And is it possible that some don't bear witness to the power of the gospel because they've never experienced it themselves? Oh, may God deliver many today from the deception that they function under that says that they can be Christians outwardly and yet never experience the power of God inwardly in their own lives. Or if we would know the experience of living in the marvelous light of Christ's kingdom, we must first know what it is to be set free from the dungeon of sin and destruction. Do you know what it is to be set free from that dungeon? Do you know what it is to be set free from that destruction? This deliverance only comes from the one who took upon himself the pains of death and who bore the awful wrath of God for those who would come to faith in him. Have you sought this deliverance from Jesus Christ? Have you asked for it? Have you cried out for his mercy? And if we are believers this morning... By the grace of Almighty God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, let us recognize that God's grace is entirely sufficient for us. And that what we require to wage war wisely, what we require to witness honorably and consistently is abundantly and readily ours in Jesus Christ. God will not deny us what we need he will not deny us what we need. May these truths sustain us in our sojourn.
May these words encourage us here in our, our time of exile, away from our heavenly homes. But even more than this, may we find greater delight in doing those things that draw men to Jesus Christ and that display his glory before a lost and dying world. May God, who is deserving of all praise, receive all glory through the preached word this morning. May he be pleased to deliver many out of darkness. May he be pleased to fill and empower many Christians to wage war wisely and to witness for Jesus Christ actively. May this be true in our own life today by the grace of God. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for your word and for its teaching. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We thank you that we have been delivered out of darkness into the kingdom of your Son, to the marvelous light of the gospel. We thank you for the work that you continue to do in us, enabling us to abstain from the desires of the flesh, and oh, how we desire to do that more wisely, how often we succumb to those passions, how often we fall victim, as it were, to our own fleshly desires, and we would ask that you would instruct us from your word today and help us to see from your word today how we should not give in, how we should not be submissive to those desires, but rather through the work of the Holy Spirit be fortified to stand guard on the wall of our hearts and our minds, to do all that we can to guard the gate, to do all that we can to ensure that we don't give in and that we don't falter. Help us to do that today. Father, also help us as we desire to witness actively for you. And it can be difficult, Father, in witnessing for Christ in this age. And yet we have these great assurances from this passage of Scripture today that we can do so in the power of your Spirit and that you use our witness not only in visiting people with the power of your Spirit in this day, but also in the days to come. And we thank you that we shall be vindicated as your witnesses on that future day of visitation, on that final day of judgment, when you shall vindicate us for being your faithful ambassadors. And those who have rejected Christ will bow the knee to him. Bless us in all that we've considered today. Help us to hide your word in our hearts today, to fill our minds with your truth. Bless us as your people to be strong and mighty, to be confident and courageous. For we ask these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.